2: this is wheel bearings i'm dan roth from forbes i'm sam abu al from navigant research
1: and i'm rebecca linland from rebecca drives
2: and we are all from
3: twit car reviews check it out because it's fun i'm just gonna keep plugging that over (laughs) over, (laughs) over again
2: well actually as long as long as we're plugging stuff before we dive into the topics uh let's give the listeners a couple updates um i i recently uh moved this whole site over to a new uh, website hosting provider, which should be much more reliable than in the past. And in the process, also set up some new email addresses uh, for the show. So you can now uh, reach us at uh, feedback at wheelbearings.media. So the site is still the same address, wheelbearings.media, as it's always been. But you can email us at uh, feedback at wheelbearings.media, or you can reach any of us individually at uh, Dan, Rebecca, or Sam, at wheel- at wheel media.
3: All right, and so the correspondence will come pouring in, I hope. Um, and because we love our our listeners and our fans, I think actually what I would like to do is every single listener should take the time to send an email. Just hi, I'm here. Yeah,
2: let, <laughs> yes. us, let us know you exist.
3: Right, um, I think, and just copy all three of us, and we'll just get a bunch of hello worlds. Um, exactly. Fast And tell us where you where you usually listen to it, like what what your location is. Yeah, that'd be fun too. Yeah, and your and your device, and you know what? While you're at it, just give us your household income, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll turn it into a survey.
1: And, and what you
2: dr- what you drive, and yeah. You know, and, and never mind. Okay, let's let's what get do into. Do you like it. long
1: walks on the
3: beach? Oh no, that's not right. Uh, do, who doesn't?
2: Wrong, wrong, wrong site, Rebecca. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> All right. Well, as we head into Thanksgiving, um, which I'm ready for because it's about food, it's the most American holiday because it's about food and with the side of subjugation. But beyond that, um, (laughs) let's talk about the cars we're thankful to drive, uh, like the cars we are driving this week. What what are you guys in? Um, Rebecca, why don't you go first?
1: So I was in the 2020 Mazda 3 compact four-door sedan. And we have talked a lot on this program about Mazda and its price points uh this one actually starts at 21,500 for the very base model that's the one that I had which is very good the one that I had uh was fully loaded of course it had all-wheel drive which is absolutely fantastic in a compact car and it topped out at 30,645 including destination so it really comes in at just under 29,000 and change um I'm sorry, it comes under 30000 without destination. I, you know, I've ragged on Mazda a lot about their price points, but I have to say that this was an absolute delight to drive. It was so solid. I really forgot that I was in a compact car a lot of times. Like, it just... It was so solid. It was quiet. It was comfortable. And I just I never minded hopping in it and running around and doing my errands and going, you know, doing all the crazy stuff I have to do in any given week. And it just was really, really, really nice. So kudos to Mazda. I think that they did a fantastic job. The interior is absolutely beautiful. Mine had a combination of a black base around it with these gorgeous white seats, uh, heated seats, which I am a total sucker for white leather. You can tell I don't have children. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it just, you know, it was just it was just really nice. Huge sunroof, you know, nice size tires. I uh, just, you know, everything about it uh,
3: really, really was good. It's uh, at 30,000 with all wheel drive. I don't think there's that many other all wheel drive compact sedans, first of all.
2: Um, I don't think no, so. Like sup- I think they're Is coming... about it, really? Yeah. yeah right. I, I would so much I, rather I, drive the I Mazda. Know. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. The only, the only issue that I did have with it was, and I'd be curious if you guys have have experienced this. So obviously it's you know mid November, and the sun sets quite early, and I had really, I hadn't noticed that sun glare. I had really bad sun glare in the afternoons. And it was a combination uh, because I knew I wanted to talk about it. So I really tried to observe it. It's a combination of the dash is very large. And of course, it's black, which they always are. But it's still reflected quite aggressively onto the windscreen. And I don't know if it's just the slope of the windscreen, but it was and it wasn't that the windshield was dirty or anything. It was just really noticeable. It oh. was totally fine on rainy days, of which we've had many. But the couple of days that I did drive it, it had the sun glare was really pretty bad. And I didn't know if you guys had experienced that.
2: Um, I, I drove the three, uh, I guess, about a month and a half, two months ago. And I had not noticed that at the time, uh, okay. which is not to say that, you know, it, it wouldn't be there. You know, if I tried it now, you know, under current Conditions, But I hadn't noticed that as a problem at the time.
1: And I also do wonder, you know, obviously I sit very differently than you would sit, uh, if that's a problem as well. But I'd love to hear from people if that. they've driven the Mazda 3, if they've had, if they have one, or if they've had this experience at all. The, the A-pillar does encroach a bit, but, you know, I've had worse. And again, I try and sit at a balance between, you know, I typically will stretch my arm out, I'll break my wrist over the steering wheel, and try and get that balance between... Well, that is proper. uh,
3: That is... I'm sorry? That is proper. That's how you're supposed to do it.
1: It is proper. I take my driving position very seriously. (laughs) Excellent.
3: Nobody else
1: does. (laughs) You know, so I try and kind of do that balance between safety and where I need to sit and... You know, just getting all the ergonomics correct, but it was something that I really, you know, I observed it the first day, which happened to be a sunny day. We had several days of cloudy days in a row, so I didn't have that issue. But then it happened again the other day, and I was like, "Wow, this is just," you know, it was it was bad, and I don't know if it's just the combination of the type of time of year it is, you know, was again, it it's all just, times
2: of the day or or it was, just it, like it was near pretty dust?
1: much all times of the day. Hmm. It was it was particularly noticeable in the late afternoon but it was definitely i was driving it in the morning as well and it was definitely noticeable in the morning also and again it's kind of one of those things i felt i i felt like it was the angle
3: of the windscreen it's that's probably part of it is angle of the windshield and where where you are i mean it's like an you're setting up kind of an optical system at that point right so right um did you so when you wear sunglasses are they polarized
1: So, you know, I have corrective lenses and they have the tint to them And and I don't, I typically, my sunglasses are too big and I typically don't wear them. So I just rely on the glasses that I have and then they tint down. Yeah. So, you know, it's a very fair question and I, I've got to. I'll dig them out and see the next time, especially with heads up display, because I know Sam, you have that mm-hmm. a lot, which this car had and was fantastic. Does it have it yeah, a heads up display agree.
3: that bounces off the windshield, or the one that puts a little piece of plastic up?
2: No, it's it's the proper one that bounces off the oh, windshield, nice. and it's it's a larger display than what you get with those with the flip up uh, ones, which yes. are there. Those are lower cost, and you know it allows manufacturers to put it into lower end vehicles, but they they're not as effective.
3: They're not as good, but yeah. So I think the The glare on the windshield issue, uh, you know, polarized filters, polarized sunglasses will probably help it. But if you have corrective lenses, uh, obviously that's that's an issue where they're not generally polarized. Um, And so that's I mean, I suffer through solar glare with with all of the the cars to a certain degree, just uh, the time of day that I'm driving. Sure. Um, you know, I'm driving either and the in the morning, the Mass Pike is no. I mean, night. do you, I don't know. If, do you go on the Mass Pike? I don't do the Pike, but I do 128 and I do Route 9, uh-huh. and so I yeah. go everywhere but the Pike.
1: <laughs> well, Route 9 is I am parallel to the Pike, so you're yeah. going to run into the same idea.
3: Yeah. Um. And yeah. It, for sure. It, so it's it, yeah, some cars are worse than others, uh, but I do find that that polarized sunglasses help cut that glare. A lot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's probably the angle of the windshield more than just about anything. You know, the, the cars that I've had that have had sort of faster windshield angles tend to yeah, to have that issue. And this doesn't look you know, like it's, it's,
2: you know, very upright.
1: No, it's definitely no, it's not, not very not. upright. It's not. And, you hey, know, but, hey, Rebecca. Oh, yeah.
2: Uh, one other question, you know, just in general about visibility. You know, this this new generation three you know, has a fairly high belt line and, you know, you're. You know, not as tall as I am, to put it mildly. And so I'm, I'm just curious, you know, uh, you know, in general with visibility, the one I drove, the, the three that I drove had the was the hatchback. Um, and, you know, I, I think in the case of the, uh, the sedan, it might be slightly better, but but not much. So I'm just curious what how how the visibility was for you.
1: You know, it's so funny that you say that because it was it was not great. And. And maybe that is because of the high belt line, but the, the rear win the, the rear window was okay, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I didn't feel like this car had great visibility in it. I, you know, it's not, it's not the same, but like the Ford Escape that does have a lower belt line now. There was a lot of visibility in that vehicle. Obviously, it sits up higher as well, but I never felt like I was sitting on the ground in this Mazda. I mean, that was one of the things that I liked about it was that it has such confidence on the road that I didn't feel like I was in a tiny little compact car. Um, but the visibility was definitely something that I struggled with a little bit.
2: Yeah, there's definitely not as much glass area in this this current generation of three.
1: yeah. I mean it's not a reason to not buy it. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like that. It and again, I I do think that you know, again like how I try and sit though. I do sit fairly high, you know. And and it wasn't that there wasn't uh, it wasn't that I didn't feel like there was uh that I couldn't see at any time, but I didn't have a I certainly didn't have that feeling of expansive spaciousness. Uh and and the rear both the rear and the front visibility were not my favorites. With that being said, I mean, I used to have Acura Integra's that had that really slit, you know, narrow slit. I've had a Fiat 500. I mean, I've had cars, <laughs> a convertible. I've had cars that don't have great rear window visibility. But and that kind of because I even noticed that at all says something about that. That is definitely something that to, to consider on a test drive of the Mazda 3. To make sure you're yeah. comfortable with it,
2: and and you know, to be fair, uh, visibility straight out the rear on most new cars has become significantly compromised because they tend to have taller rear decks. Uh, you know that very, you know, in most cases, you know that sloped rear glass, and so the the vertical field of view through that w- rear window tends to be fairly limited. And now, you know, in modern cars, you also have rear seat headrests, which also significantly reduces it. And in the case of the three, you know, this new generation three, while it's a great looking car, it does have a higher, higher belt line. And on the hatchback in particular, you know, it really sweeps up. Uh, that belt line the rear gla- the on the rear doors the glass the sheet metal sweeps up a lot more towards the back edge of the door, whereas in the in the sedan, it kind of the bottom edge of the glass tends to stay you know more along a straight line all the way sweeping back the trunk, lid. yeah, yeah, it stays and along the
1: belt line as opposed to sweeping so, up,
2: yeah, so in the sedan, you know the C pillars are not as substantial as they are on the hatchback,
3: yeah. Well, and, and yeah, people, I mean, but, people like feeling cocooned like that too. They they feel safer in the and and you know, for side impact, it's better uh, or somewhat easier. Yeah, it, yeah I, I think, don't I don't agree. That's debatable.
1: Uh, yeah, I think there's w- a there's a compromise.
3: That was at least the explanation for some of the high belt line was if you have metal there instead of glass, it's it's easier to pass those side impact tests. Um, mm. it, that may not be so, but it seemed. Good to me, who is not a, you know, a crash engineer.
2: Yeah, I I, I would say, you know, pu- purely from a, a mechanical standpoint, that's that's probably true. It, you know, the more sheet metal you have there as opposed to glass, you know, it, it is going to tend. Pro- it's probably going to be easier to pass the side impact test. Yeah, And, and um, that said, you know, you're you're also compromising on on safety. You know, visibility is a significant impact on safety.
3: Oh, I agree. And, Absolutely. I'd rather. So, be you know, if
2: you. If you can't see around you, you know, then you know you're more likely to hit something because simply because you can't see it. It's a it's a trap. Uh, It's a trap. It's a a scam. See, here's what's
3: going on. They're taking away the windows from us so they can sell us (laughs) sensor packages. That's what's going on. (laughs) You don't need to look. You don't need to see out the windows. Don't trust your eye. Your lying eyes and ears. Look at the light on the A pillar. (laughs) Look
1: at the light.
3: <laughs> right? It's just a thought. But, you know, that psychological feeling of being sort of like snuggled up in this, like, uh, you know, metal envelope, I guess, is something that appeals to some people. It, it drives me bonkers because I, I, you know, I like to yeah. see out of the car. Well,
1: well I, and it also is design wise, you know, the, the high belt line, narrow greenhouse, you know, we've all written those words dozens of times. You know, that's the look. And it's a cool look, but it doesn't help visibility.
3: Yeah.
2: And unfortunately, I think that you know that is a trend that's starting to starting to reverse a little bit, at least with some manufacturers. And I think you know over the coming years we'll we'll probably see you know a little bit more balance there between the glass and sheet metal, uh, or a little bit better balance between glass and sheet metal. You know, as you mentioned, Rebecca, the the new Escape and the uh, the Corsair. Uh, Lincoln Corsair, you know, they have definitely moved towards a lower belt line. And I think we're going to start seeing other manufacturers do that as well.
1: Yeah. And they've done it in such a way that it doesn't compromise the design. I mean, I think that both you know, both the Escape and the Corsair are really nice looking vehicles. So, you know, every little centimeter or millimeter counts. And so I think they've done a nice job of, of just bringing the belt line down a little bit and still having that that cocoon type of feel. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't ever remember feeling unsafe or feeling exposed when I was driving both of those vehicles. So, I, you know, I think it's I think that's it's a it's a balance.
2: It's kind of the opposite of driving my car, as you know, Rebecca.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> your car with
2: unlimited Half
1: of your body is out of your car.
2: <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> there, there's no cocoon feeling in my in my first generation Miata. You, you, know, you know, and it's it's interesting what you get used to, because one of the sort of like
3: most terrifying automotive experiences I've ever had was riding in a, uh, a tea bucket, a custom tea bucket. It, it was it's really cool it was built on a chopped down model a frame and it had a Mazda 12a rotary and it was very small the body was just one ply of fiberglass <laughs> <laughs> and and we're you know we're in Worcester for the car show and so that's that's fine but you you get used to it really quick and you just like you ride around in it and you feel like yeah this thing is going to contain me but if you hit anything you're you're airborne. There were no no seat belts. The I think the windshield might have been plate glass at that time, so the safety glass. So uh, have
2: you ever have awesome. you ever driven a, a Wrangler with the doors off?
3: Yes, it's actually pretty good with the doors off. But it, it you feel very vulnerable, oh, except,
2: except for the turbulence. Yeah, there's a lot of wind turbulence around around the, the sides there when you take the doors off because of that you know flat windshield and and just the way the thing is shaped. You know the 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 wind just swirls around in the cabin when you take those doors off
3: yeah well and that's like that's why it's so great in the summer you know and they they make like pegs that you can stick your foot just outside of the body (laughs)
2: Mm -hmm. just like just like a motorcycle yeah
3: it's just like it fits with the wrangler crowd i suppose but it's just kind of funny and then you think about again if anything happens like your foot and your ankle and probably like the
2: whole lower part of your leg below
3: the knee is is the Mm -hmm. first to go (laughs) so enjoy it while you've got it (laughs)
2: <laughs> Fortunately, Wranglers are a lot have a, a much reduced uh, predilection to rolling over than they used to.
3: Yeah, that's that's true. They're they're not unstable at all. No. No. It's the drivers. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. Let's. What else did we need to say about the Mazda three? While we're we're on the subject, did we? Because uh, we got a little off point. But overall, yeah. you know, what did you think of <laughs> the? Was um, all, the it was all related, though. It was all. It's some, well, There's a common thread. Um, yeah. the, the infotainment to me is is sort of a stumbling block for Mazda because it's kind of like iDrive, but it's kind of not. It's not a touchscreen. Yeah. Or,
1: I definitely had some interface. I I described it as clumsy in my review. Uh, And then Android Auto, sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. It was very arbitrary. Like I was so pleased because the first time I dialed up, I was like, "Okay, good. Here it is. I plugged it in, got everything up and running, put down my phone and bam, it was gone. And I could never get it back for like three days. (laughs) And then all of a sudden it It was back back again. I'm like. Oh, great! okay. I guess we're friends again, and you, you know it, what you
2: know what I've found on a number of cars um with with Android auto is the the uh, USB connections tend to be somewhat flaky
1: okay
2: yeah you know uh, sometimes if I swap out to a different USB cable, it works just fine.
1: I do know that, but the thing is that that it worked perfectly like it was
2: oh i know i've had the, I've had exactly the same thing. <laughs> You and know, where sudden- it, it works works absolutely perfectly. And then all of a sudden, you know, even as you're driving along, you know, the Android auto screen will go away. Yes. And the the only way to get it back is to unplug and plug back in, you know, or sometimes even then it doesn't come back. And, you know, if you if you've got a cable that you've been using for a while, especially in the car where it's more likely to get wound up into weird you know, bent, you know, and, and uh, you know, some of the. The uh, the wires inside the cable may get uh, may get fractured. Sure, um, it it tends it's tends to be much less stable, and that's why I'm looking forward to the onset of vehicles that have uh, wireless support for for both CarPlay and Android Auto, uh, and those are starting to come to market now, including the uh, uh, the Escape and the Corsair.
1: Yeah, that will be really nice. So I definitely had some issues with that. I. Listen to a lot of Billy Joel channel because I just couldn't be bothered to figure out how to change it.
3: (laughs) And then then I. Every version of Goodnight Saigon ever recorded. (laughs)
1: Exactly. (laughs) And then uh, I did eventually go through the several steps to do that. I, I found, you know, and again, this is a little bit of an ergonomics. I found that the the center console where they have the dial and where the buttons are. I found it, it was, again, this is because of how I sit, but it it sat really far back for me. Like I had to, it's funny. I'm actually making the motion now. Like I had to like physically, like move my arm back, move my elbow back in between the seats because it was just set kind of far back uh, for me. And you know, it was just uncomfortable and I had to look down a lot to see it. Now, with that being said, I loved the heads up display and I loved the fact that it gave directions and it gave signage and my speed. So I didn't have to look down a lot, thankfully, but when I did, it was not a comfortable reach for me.
2: When you say look down, you mean look down for the, the dial or right for the, for the dial the and cluster. the buttons
1: and stuff. And, you know, whether I wanted to go to home or get the map back up or, you know, I, I literally like I changed the radio channel like twice because it was so annoying. So, <laughs> but yeah, can, well, I think I think that's you can one of those on your things favorites when, in and stuff, you know, like you can personalize it. So,
2: yeah, well, and I think that's one of those things where, you know, once you once you've spent a little more time with it and get accustomed to the. <laughs> the what those four buttons around the dial are you, you it's really something you can do without looking at it
1: it is you it know, is because for it's, sure it's
2: directly you know that dial is directly behind the shift lever you know so i mean you drop your hand down there yeah i, I mean in your case you know it, uh, i i can i can understand you know where uh just because of your seating position it might ergonomically it might be a little bit further back than is comfortable for you but in general um you know, just being able to drop your hand down on it and twist and push and pull on, on that dial and tap those buttons, you, you eventually, you you will, you know, you'll know which, which of those four buttons are, which ones, you know, uh, you know, the bottom left is the, uh, um, is the audio um, or is the back button. Is the back button. Um, the top yeah.
1: left is the navigation. The one on right. the right bottom, I think is home. Yeah. And the one so, on the top right is audio.
2: Right. So once you get used to those And that's from memory. You, you can, like, yeah, I mean you can you can do that without without looking at it, you know, and just glance over at the screen you right. know and manipulate the stuff fairly quickly. And right. that's the thing I like about those those rotary control systems is that you can do that, you know, without it does, it takes once you once you remember where the button positions are, it takes less cognitive load than it actually aiming for a touch target on the screen.
1: (laughs) I knew you were going to get that in there somewhere. (laughs) Well, I think as with any infotainment system, it's always a matter of getting used to it. And, you know, I did know, you know, I took the time to load in favorites so that I didn't have to go through that motions of trying to, you know, when I went to change the music and stuff. But it's, again, as anything, you have to spend the time with the infotainment system to maximize it and to get used to it there are others though that are i think are a little bit more intuitive to use and so that would be my only thing but it's not something that i got used to it after a while and again it's none of these things are reasons not to buy this vehicle it's such a good it's such a good small car that I would absolutely tell people to put it on their shopping list yeah, because so, there's it's there's so many good things about I it.
3: I was going to say, like, OK, we've given we've given plenty of oversight on sort of the stuff that's a little bit, you know, that, that you should you should see that you can live with. But um, overall, the reasons to buy the vehicle are like, you know. Looks great. It's pretty comfortable, right? It's uh, seems it's luxurious.
1: Very, it's quiet. It's quiet. It's steady. I love the fact that it has all wheel drive to it. It doesn't feel like an Econobox at all. I mean, for under thirty thousand, you know. And again, this one is all dolled up, so you can definitely get them for less. And so, you know, for under thirty thousand, I think that's it's a really really good vehicle. I, uh, you know, it's just, it's something that you don't necessarily need to have absolutely everything in it. So I, you know, I think it's something that, that every, everybody can get used to, you know, all the, all the stuff that we're talking about is, is addressable in many ways, but you know, I'm also not going to just sit there and be a fangirl and say, this is the perfect vehicle. You know, I'm going to address what some of the concerns that I had, but you know, it's got a 2.5 liter four cylinder engine that was really peppy. The only thing I didn't like when I put it in sport mode I just found it made the engine rev louder and noisier, and I didn't find it appealing.
2: Okay, I can, I, I can agree with that.
1: Yeah, it's, so it's, that you know, it didn't seem to really do much for me. So I kept it just in general. I, I didn't put it in. I, I put it in sport several times, trying to like it. <laughs> 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 and it just it didn't.
3: Yeah, it, it wasn't. It wasn't for me. So sport but can, overall, it's great. Sport can be like that in a lot of cars. It can just be like yeah. That. yeah. Um, all right. Uh, well, now that we've had a thorough uh, winding thesis on all things small car. Oh, how's the trunk? Is the trunk decent? The trunk is pretty good, actually. Yeah, no, the trunk is really good.
1: Uh, I had to, we're, we're clearing at my mom's house. And so I had some electronics and stuff to bring to Goodwill. And and it was super easy. And, you know, it had, it had a good amount of space to it, for sure. The only thing that was annoying, and this is probably a setting, I went When you unlock all the doors, the trunk does not unlock as well. So the number of times that I walked up to the unlocked car thinking the trunk would unlock as well was annoying. And so and that, again, is probably just a setting on there. But the size of the trunk itself was great.
2: Yeah. And if it's not quite enough for you, then, you know, then opt for the hatchback, which, you know, as always, you know, is more has more utility than any, especially in small cars, has more utility than sedans.
1: Yeah. And I I think the hatchback is is a fantastic option, you know, for those people that don't want to have an SUV. I. Go up, be all over that hatch. I think it's really cool. And while we're on the topic of of Mazda, I think uh, we're driving the CX-30, the the twenty twenty six thirty 30 in a couple of weeks in California.
2: Yep. I'll be there uh, on the first wave.
3: Yes. So we'll be
1: looking forward to that.
3: So you can tell us Um, about the infotainment and the seating position and the the visibility, whether it measures up to this car. Because it's basically like a crossover version of this car, right?
2: it 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 is yeah at, i actually uh spent some time um this week at the LA Auto show talking with the uh, program manager for the Maz, for the CX30 and uh you know we talk and and we can get into that a little more next time after uh, Rebecca and I have had a chance to drive it but uh you know it's uh it, it is you know very heavily derived from the CX3 excellent that that, that bodes well uh or from the from the 3 i mean not the CX3 yeah. just the 3
1: um, yeah, because the interior, you know, the interior on this vehicle is really, really nice. And the switches, the toggles, all that had a really, really nice feel to it. The The leather dash was beautiful. Nice top stitching. Like there's just, again, there's just really nice premium features. I will say that it had a USB in the front and a wireless charging pad, but then in the back, I was a little surprised there aren't any USBs in the center console in the back. Again, it's a four, a five seat car that you probably don't have a lot of people in the back, but it was a lot of cars have that now, so I was a little surprised that it didn't have that. That would be a nice add in the future.
3: Yeah, and hey, they got to save money somewhere, right? If you want exactly, the yes. USBs. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh so let's stay with Mazda Sam because you're driving the uh the two thousand uh, nineteen the two thousand sixteen uh two thousand nineteen Mazda six signature
2: yeah, so pretty much everything that uh we ju- you know most most of what we just said about the three really applies to the Mazda six as well uh um, oh, we're but, done you know in in, in a, in a <laughs> you know in a slightly larger package uh you know it's you know again you know great styling really nice interior. Uh, you know, it, it feels very premium. Uh, you know, it is it is one of my favorite midsize sedans, uh, you know, midsize mainstream sedans. Uh, you know, the Signature, you know, was new for 2019. We actually talked about it. I drove it earlier this year and we talked about it then. So I'm not going to, you know, uh, repeat too much of that. But the Signature comes with the, uh, the turbocharged version of the 2.5 liter uh, that has 227 horsepower and 310 foot pounds of torque. Uh, it's front wheel drive only, no all wheel drive, um, you know, but it does have, you know, most of what el- you know, the other stuff that you will find on the three. Uh, and uh, then, um, you know, that extra rear seat, leg room, uh, a little bit more headroom in the back, uh, slightly bigger trunk. But, you know, aside from that, you know, it's the same kind of feel that you get in a three, just, Extended and expanded, you know, and I had the chance last year to to drive one of these during the Mama Spring Rally at Road America, you know, where you get to really thrash it. And, you know, I mean, for for a front-wheel drive, you know, mid-size sedan, you know, I mean, this thing has some fantastic driving dynamics. It feels really good, you know. And in this case, you know, with the sport mode, you know, you do get a little bit more, because it is a more powerful engine, you do, you know, get a little bit more of that feel. It's not just, you know, holding the the gears longer and revving higher before it shifts and making more noise, you know, it actually, you know, has some extra performance that that you get from that. But overall, you know, the same kinds of themes that you get, you know, from any Mazda car, any modern Mazda car are there. And, you know, you get a lot of, you know, the same kind of equipment um, with, um, you know, the the driver assist features. The lane-keeping assist that Mazda has on the 6 is not – great it's not particularly effective you know it's fine as more as a lane departure warning system it doesn't really do much to to really try to intervene to actually keep you in the lane it's certainly not a lane centering system but the adaptive cruise control works well the blind spot monitoring uh is all there you know you have really nice napa leather covered seats Um, and it's just, you know, it's just a really lovely place to spend time. You know, if you've got to, if you've got to do a lot of driving, you know, this is a a great vehicle to do it in.
1: What's the price point on it?
2: Uh, this one, you know, this is the loaded one. It has Mm -hmm. everything, you know, basically you can't add anything else to this, you know, including delivery charge. It came to 36,520. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah. I mean, you know, compared to, you know, a loaded Camry or Accord or, or even a fusion, you know, it's it's in that same ballpark. They're all in that mid thirties price range, so you know it's not cheap, but it's you know you can you can certainly get you know a Mazda six in one of the lower trim levels, you know, in the mid twenty thousands range. Right? You know, it's 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 you know, you're not going to get the the Napa leather seats and the turbo engine, but you know, aside from that, you know, most of the rest of the basic characteristics of this, even in base trim levels, you know, Mazda you know, really does a great job with their interiors. Uh, and, you know, it's it's just a great great place to spend time. You know, it, it feels it feels much more premium than its price point would suggest. That's
3: the that's the master trick. And it it looks great too. You know, the the six mm-hmm. especially oh, yeah. is elegant. Yeah, you know, it's a, that lo- that it's little, a
2: fantastic looking car.
3: Yeah, the bit of length lets them sort of stretch out the lines. You know, the three looks great but the six really because it's a little longer, it really the the styling develops a little better and they're just right and beautiful.
2: Right. And, and the six, you know, the six is nearing the end of its current life cycle. Mm. Um, you know, so it still has the kind of the earlier iteration of Mazda's Kodo design theme. Uh, so you've got a you know, little more sharper creases, uh, you know, compared to what you see on the three, the three, they've kind of softened it, you know, the, the, the theme that they talked about last year when they first showed the three, you know, was this idea of, you know, a pebble, you know, in a stream, you know, the water's been running over for for many years and smoothing it out. So taking, you know, kind of those same kinds of themes and evolving it further. And, and I'll be really fascinated to see what they do with the next generation six, you know, as they bring this, this updated version of this design language to that car uh, and apply what they've done with the three, you know, to that slightly larger form factor.
3: Well, we've covered Mazda
2: pretty comprehensively now. I mean, I think it's like <laughs> most of their lineup. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, not, 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 not so much anymore. I mean, you know, they're going to have, they're now going to be up to four SUVs with the addition of the CX-30. And, you know, the, the CX-5 already accounts for more than half of all Mazda sales in the U.S.
3: Yeah, that wow. one's, that's a good one, too. I like that yeah, a lot. Yeah, that is. Yeah. I
1: do wonder, you know, how successful they've been trying to sort of move up scale. I mean, the, I like the fact that they're speaking with the product first. Uh, but you know, consideration and and such, I uh, you know continues to, I think, be a, an ongoing challenge. But the product certainly is there uh, and and really nice.
2: Yeah, I think, I, I would say that you know there may be. Um, uh, reconsidering the pace at which they try to move up scale. Mm. Um, you know, when you look at the pricing, that you know, one of the things this week at the LA Auto Show, they announced the, the U.S. pricing for the CX-30, uh, which starts at uh, about $23,000. Oh,
1: they've got twenty dollars uh, on the site. Well,
2: with, with delivery. Oh, you okay. Know. okay. I, cool. the, the, just on a slight tangent here, I think it's time for all manufacturers to just stop ca- calling out the MSRP without delivery. If you cannot option, you know, if you cannot take the option to take your take delivery somewhere where you don't have to pay for it, just include it in the MSRP because it's not it's not an optional extra. Right. It is. It is something you absolutely it's a mandatory fee that you must pay. So just include it. You mean you can't go to Hiroshima
3: and get your Mazda for for
2: no no delivery? Uh, Sadly, (laughs) sadly you cannot. So 20, you know, 23,000 including delivery, which you know, for uh, a compact crossover like that is actually, you know, not an unreasonable price, especially, you know, when you consider that it, like other Mazdas, you know, it does have, you know, a more premium feeling interior than much of its competitive class. And so, you know, I, I think that they are, at least with the CX-30, they're they're trying to, and I think, you know, with the with the three as well, I think they tried to hold the line on pricing, you know, try to to give it that premium feel, you know, but not, go overboard on the, on the pricing because, you know, even, you know, the, the all wheel drive sedan that you drove, Rebecca, you know, 31,000, you know, is, is not bad. You know, that's a, that's a perfectly reasonable price I think for what you're getting.
1: Right. For, for the content and the quality and the capability, I agree with you. It's still, it's still a lot. We don't want to dismiss that, but for yeah. the, for what you're getting, there's a good value story there. Um, Now, when I'm looking at the Mazda site, one of the things, and when we're going on a low-grade rant about manufacturers, (laughs) I'm curious because, you know, there seems to be a lot of 20, like on the Mazda site, the Mazda CX-3 and the Mazda CX-5, you can still build a 2018 on their site and then 2019. And they don't have, some cars have 2020, but not others, but there's there's a three, there's three different model years available on their website. You've got
3: inventory to move. I'm
1: just, I I find this is fascinating. It's it's, almost 2020.
2: Yeah. It's, it's not unusual, you know, on most manufacturers websites, you know, you'll usually find a link to previous model years, you know, where you can build at least, at least the, you know, the one year earlier model, because they often do have, still have some inventory in stock. Um, and the other thing I've been noticing, you know, especially in the past year, is many of these manufacturers are, you know, the, the 2020 you know, or the new model years, the new model year models are actually coming in many cases, not, you know, in some cases they are coming earlier. And in right. some cases, they're actually coming later. Um, you know, so, you know, the, uh, you know, the tw- uh, the 2020 um, uh, Nissan Sentra you know was just launched you know it's you know almost the end of november now they just launched it this week in LA and you know it'll be going on sale early in the year right and you know in the past typically anything that went on sale after the 1st of january usually took up the next model year but now that's often not the case they're often starting you know with the you know even if it's in the middle of the model year like that they're they're starting with the with the current model year
1: do we know why that's happening I mean, did certification um, change or something like it's just something no, that's really curious to me?
2: Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm not really sure. I haven't I haven't really delved into it much. You know, I, I don't think there's any real certification changes. You know, in a lot of yeah. cases, it's just kind of uh, arbitrary decision making.
1: Well, I think part it, it, it was brought to my attention when I was doing this project that I was embroiled in the last couple of weeks where I was looking at literally 80 different models and. It just struck me that how many 2019s I was still writing about because that's what was available on the website. And and then when I'm, as we're talking about Mazda this morning, there's, I'm just looking at that. So anyway, it was just an observation.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, you know, this is actually um, this kind of move away from, for some, to some degree from the traditional model year designations is actually something that was kind of started by Tesla. You know, cuz Tesla has never really stuck with the the usual model year designations. You know, they they do it for for EPA certification purposes, you know, that's, that's something that's required. Right. But beyond that, you know, in their marketing, their advertising, you know, on their website, you'll never see model year designations. It's just whatever they happen to be building at that particular moment. You know, and they because they they don't hold off until a new model year to introduce new stuff. You know, they will roll out changes whenever they feel like it's ready. Whether it's actually ready or not is another story, but they, <laughs> they roll out change, changes, you know, on the fly, and so the the model year designations don't mean as much there. And traditional manufacturers aren't haven't gone to that degree, but they are being a little more fluid in what you know what a given model year, you know, when a given model year starts or finishes.
1: We'll speak and and, and we'll we'll circle back to Tesla. But Dan, what are you driving?
3: <laughs> yeah, and so I had the um, 2020. GMC Sierra AT4 with the Carbon Pro package and the off-road performance package or some stuff. Anyway, it was a $67,000, uh, 1500 <laughs> which seems like a lot of money for a 1500 but I understand that people are spending lots on pickups, um, and I really want to know why people seem to think that the GMC and, and Chevrolet pickups are not as good as uh say the ram and the ford pickups because those two seem to be really gunning for number one number one obviously is just ford in terms of overall sales although there's there's an argument to be made there but um also ram seems to be duking it out with with gmc for uh a chevrolet or chevrolet for the number two slot um and i i can understand some of the criticism but this is a really good pickup truck yeah.
2: But did you borrow a front-end loader and drop a load of cinder blocks into the bed <laughs> to see if it would scratch the carbon fiber bed? No, I,
3: I did not. Um, I Then you didn't really test it. Right. I will say that <laughs> in terms of doing truck stuff, I did very little truck stuff. But... Um, because this is a very tarted up $67,000 1500 with red tow hooks and um, all the goodies and stuff. I probably drove it the way I see most of these very fancy 1500s being <laughs> used, which is not to do truck stuff. And it's right. basically as a commuter car. And and in that respect, it is just it's a lovely truck to drive. What I liked about it was uh, that it, it just it drives like all the team's spoke to each other on a regular basis (laughs) like
2: yeah it does i can't remember did you say this was a denali no it's
3: the at4 so it's the mid-level trim um had the 6.2 liter v8 though which and the 10 speed auto which i think is is probably one of the biggest reasons to like it uh did it
1: have the multi pro tailgate
3: yes it did good Um, okay and it, that, so first of all, small blocks are lovely. This is the loveliest example of a small block. Like if it, 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 one of the things I've always loved about small blocks is that just sort of like wave of sort of competent, quiet torque that you always get, even the the ones that were choked by emission stuff and had like 10 horsepower. They always had this sort of like you could waft along on the hey, torque, they, right? They
2: never got below 100, 100 horsepower.
3: Never below 100. Excellent. All all eight cylinders. and. <laughs>
2: Well, actually, inches. they never get they never got below 100 horsepower from the factory. For a time, they they did. Uh, after a while, get below well below 100 horsepower in the real world because they had a problem with the uh, the heat treating on the camshafts. Yeah, they'd and wipe the cams. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we had an 82 Malibu with a 4.4 liter v Oh, you had a 260. the 260. Excellent. Yeah, <laughs> and um, after a while, it started running really bad. Mm. And you know, I pulled the spark plugs and I was checking compression, and I realized that um, the four middle cylinders weren't doing anything. And I found out that the way they treat the, the camshafts, they the way they heat treat the camshafts, they would bring the heat treat probes in from the ends and, and spin it up and heat it. And it didn't always get completely hot in the middle, so they were soft. And so the cam lobes would eventually wear off. They were and so I pulled the I pulled the cam out of this thing and the four center lobes were completely round. Circles. There was no lobes at all.
3: So you had a half made camshaft, literally.
2: Yeah. Well I had, I had cylinder deactivation before it was popular. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it, was, it was just permanent. <laughs> well, you know and see that's an
3: opportunity for an upgrade. Uh, get yourself a nice like high lift cam with make it make it uh, idle crappy. Um, but no this this v8 and 10 speed transmission work so well together. they're so strong and competent and I I drove gently just to see what I could get out of it and, and gently doesn't mean like being a traffic hazard. Um, it means sort of limiting it to, like, you know, 65 on the highway and stuff. Uh, it, I got it up to 20 miles per gallon combined, which I was pretty impressed with. Did you
2: say this was the 5.3 or the 6.2? Six, two?
3: 6.2. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's good, man. Uh, I, yeah. It has stop-start. Um, you, you know, if you spend more time in stop-and-go traffic, obviously your average drops. But uh, if you drive it sort of in a relaxed fashion, it returns pretty decent fuel economy. Uh, and... It's a good truck for driving in that relaxed fashion cuz it, it tends to just reward you. It, it it all the controls feel really good. You know, the the steering, the brakes, the the accelerator, everything works together. You know, one of the things I don't like about the the Fords is they've got that real squishy EcoBoost um throttle response where it's you get that real strong hit of turbo torque and you're constantly like making adjustments where this, this one seems a lot more linear because it's not a turbocharged engine and, and it works really well with its 10 speed auto. So I just, it was just great to, to drive from a driving perspective. It drove really well and it was quiet and it rode pretty well. So the thing it's and it's two thirds of a Tahoe. (laughs) So it's like, or two thirds of a a suburban really. Uh, And I was like, well, I, okay, I, I could be down with this or, um, and GMC, I guess it's Yukon. So um I I liked all that I liked a lot of the thoughtful touches around the interior the infotainment was was decent um you know the controls were good uh except for you know some of the climate controls were a little crappy where they were sort of they they gang functions on a button but other, other than that you know it was just a really easy truck to operate and to use and very very good to drive um and I I feel like if you were to load it up with a trailer and and you know take a long long haul with it great uh the the off-road stuff kind of is a little confusing here because all it really does is it adds tires it makes some noise and limit your traction um so your braking distance gets longer your cornering gets a little bit worse and your steering accuracy is is not as good and it's just such a long truck i I, yeah i guess i can go off-road but i i feel like it's it's probably going to be out of its element a lot sooner than something like a raptor um or the the um the ram what's the ram the power the rebel no the rebel yeah um and you know those two are probably a little bit more equipped although it does have a suspension lift with the off-road package it just it seemed maybe less in character um but again you know not taking it off-road i, I can't it, it i'm sure that stuff probably helps but my fear is always like, yeah, it'll help me get stuck like deeper in the woods. So it's a more
2: expensive. Actually, you'd, you'd be surprised how good some of these big trucks are as long as wherever you're going, you know, has enough width for the truck to fit through. These things are surprisingly capable off road. I mean, I, I haven't driven the Sierra uh, off road, but you know, I've driven the the Rebel and the um, and the past, you know, some of the Fords on, on off road courses and. They can actually handle a surprising amount. You know, granted, you know, compared to you know a short a two door Wrangler, you know, you're not going to be able, you're not going to have the same kind of breakover height you would with those. Um, you know, and certainly, you know, again, as I said, the width is going to be a limiting factor. But overall, you know, these things can go pretty much anywhere.
3: Huh? Well, I mean, I, I guess that's fair. Um, it, it's just. I so this is where I I walk away kind of puzzled because I thought that it was, it's a really nice package and yes it's expensive but the the what makes it really nice is the basic goodness of the truck so you don't have to buy, the the fancy Sierra to get a pretty decent truck and it, you know the the sort of most lasting impression was how light on its feet it felt where the Ram feels just like it you're driving the titanic it just feels so heavy and it is (laughs) Um, yeah i
1: think the gm gm products tend to drive smaller than they are they there's just something they've they've done a really good job on that aspect of it and you don't feel like you're hauling a truck around with you
2: yeah and you know for for some of the the moaning that, you know, that people have done about, you know, perhaps the quality, especially on the Silverado, maybe may less so on the on the Sierra, but the the quality of the interior materials, things like that. Um, you know, one thing that GM has done a really good job at over the last six or seven years is reducing the weight of their vehicles. You know, they've done a lot of work you know, and, and that's without, you know, taking the Ford path of resorting to an all aluminum body. You know, they've they've done some very smart Uh, Use of mixed material architectures, you know, using various grades of steels and aluminums and and in the case of this particular truck, carbon fiber uh, for the bed, you know, it's uh, GM's done a lot of great stuff there. Yeah, you know, to actually make it lighter. So not not only does it feel like it's driving lighter, it actually is lighter than the other trucks.
3: Yeah, and, or and that, that not, pays off. Not
2: so much lighter than the than the Ford. The Ford it's a, it's close to the same weight as the Ford, even without using all aluminum.
3: Right, and that was the joke, right? Was that uh, the Ford had to go to aluminum to get it as light as the Chevy?
2: <laughs> yeah,
3: um, but it, it really like that pays off. the The, the Ford the, the Ford F series feels kind of like loose fit and just that's not a truck I like. Um, the interior and those trucks are cheap too. Um, the interior here was a little harder to get a read on. And, and I, I tried to really examine materials. It, it probably is the area where it doesn't compare as well to Ram, which is the they're the class leader. They have the nicest cabins. Um, this is all black. So I think that hides some of the, the contrast in materials quality. Um, it had leather for the seats with some some, you know, highlight trim on it. Um, but the lower dash and and parts of the door panels probably aren't as nice as you're going to find in, in, uh, Ram. I think it's competitive in the class though. And if, if you, if you want to get picky about it for your $67,000, it probably feels more like a 40 something thousand dollar interior. But again, that's the same kind of thing you get in the Fords, even with their super duper trim that goes way, way, way up uh, above $70,000. Well, um,
1: And you always have to balance the work truck aspect of this because you don't want somebody to come in and say, I can't I can't use this truck for work because it's too nice. Yeah. You know I, what I mean? Like so that I agree. The materials are there's always that you you need to have a certain amount of durability to these materials in because it's still at the end of the day is a pickup truck.
3: Yeah. And, and you know, styling wise, I think it's very handsome. Uh, so it's a, it. It surprised me because I came at it like, well, these are the the trucks that everybody's saying are, are not as good. They're, they're the trucks that are lagging the competition. I don't think that's true. Um, I think the F series sort of claims its sales crown through a variety of sleight of hand. <laughs> It's a a very competitive market. All the trucks are good. These don't feel any less solid.
1: The volume is split between the GMC and Chevy brands. And so that's always one of the arguments.
2: Right. And, you know, in the past, there have been times when the combined sales of GMC and Chevrolet actually did exceed Ford. Uh, But that's not true today.
3: Yeah, and well, and Ford also has the the benefit of um, they really really know the fleet business. They have that; they're oh, so yeah. good at that. If they need to sell a few, they'll sell a few to to maintain that position. And and they're really good at what they do. And the F series is is a good truck. Uh, none of the trucks are bad. Uh, you know, like I said, they all feel solid. I you kind of well, gla- your eyes glaze over when you read the the description of the frame. You like, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. It's a railroad bridge. Who cares? (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: But the other thing I'm wondering with with the volume, you know, Ram is very clever because they still have the classic available and there's an estimate of like 30 percent of their sales are that classic. And so but they don't separate it out. It's all one
3: volume number. And oh boy, I bet they're willing to deal on that. <laughs>
2: oh yeah. Well, those, I mean those sell primarily, you know, as with Ford, you know, they sell primarily the classics to to fleets and commercial customers. Yeah, and,
1: and again, it's like, got a bench seat, which I think is awesome.
3: They're not, not <laughs> none of This is all down to personal preference. None of these trucks are inherently bad. I I prefer the 6.2 here to the turbocharged V6 in the in the Ford, but again, you a, you're, you're i think you're paying a premium for that engine and b i
2: for the v6 or the v8 for the v8
3: um and I, or, not or necessarily the 6.2 anyway um i just i just think at a certain point the ford is like the EcoBoost boost is, is gonna out tow and out like it's just that the turbos really do help you when it comes to work. Um, they're also gonna be thirsty as a bastard. Though. <laughs> like your fuel economy going. Well, can go you in know the, the,
2: the thing. You know the thing about the the towing. You know you'll see these three companies. You know go back and forth. You know on their claims on who has the the highest tow rating. You know and you know the reality is. You know if you can tow eleven thousand five hundred pounds or twelve thousand pounds or twelve thousand two hundred pounds. Does it really make that much difference? No, you don't want
3: to. You don't no. want to tow one of these it's, things out
2: at the edge of their capabilities. It's a pissing contest between yeah. the three of them. Yeah, um,
3: but the, you know the the six point two has four hundred and twenty horsepower. It can tow up to ninety four hundred pounds. Um, they say that actually it gets twenty miles per gallon on the highway. So I can confirm that on the highway you can achieve twenty miles per gallon. Um, and it starts at fifty thousand. So fifty thousand plus seven thousand of options actually seems like. Not that abusive for the, uh, <laughs> the truck buyer. <laughs> um, seems like a pretty, pretty solid deal. Um, and it was a good place to spend time. I I liked it quite a bit. Uh, you know, if we're talking just the. Um, what is it? The 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 sybaritic qualities of the truck. <laughs> it's just a nice luxury. What? Car. Uh, <laughs> well, so if you're a sybarite, you. um it's a i think it's a david e davis word uh but it's just ba- it well, basically pictures. like the luxurious environment um the more it's a lovely truck more luxurious it is the more super <laughs> I, I just I like <laughs> i like uh gmc's and, and like gm's approach you know instead of having like uh sort of, sort of like fold down steps on the on the side of the bumper they just cut a
2: hole in it <laughs> stuck a step in there. Yeah, they just mold, mold it right into the bumper itself. Yeah,
3: it seems like there's a lot of those little thoughts that are like, okay, we could we could just do it this way, which is a little bit. More, and and every truck manufacturer is well, going to have their own little bit of clever. So,
2: speaking of those those little thoughts, did you actually try playing around with that uh, multi-pro tailgate? I, I did. Or a bit. Whatever it is they call it.
3: It was it was yeah. a little. I was a little confused by it. Just like what. <laughs> Like this, okay, this one goes down, this one goes, like, just the different configurations. It's like a Swiss Army knife, you know? You fold out all the mm-hmm. blades, and you're like, what am I going to do
2: with yeah, it? I think there's six different positions you can use. Yeah,
3: They need to put, like, a, a well, I'm sure there's a guide in the glove compartment. which Yeah, I, well,
2: I think cool, you know, one, I one like of the it. issues I've, it, it is, but one of the issues I've seen with it is, um, in some cases, you know, if you actually have a trailer hooked up, it, you know, can interfere with the trailer. You know, if you drop down, like, the. Oh, the step? The the step part of it, the middle section of it, um, you know, it'll hit the trailer hitch. Yeah. Um, so you have to be careful of things like that. Um, but you know, I mean, otherwise I think it's, I think it's generally a good idea. Of course, it does add complexity and cost. But, to the thing, But which you is don't why have to buy it. No, you don't. Okay, so, but you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's part of that, you know, 11,000 or almost $12,000 carbon pro package on the AT4 that also includes the, the carbon fiber bed. And it's interesting that they don't break out the cost of that carbon fiber bed. I'd be curious to know how much that by itself costs.
3: Do you think that that carbon fiber bed is is significantly more expensive than, well, yeah, I guess it is significantly more expensive than a stamped
2: steel bed? Oh, yeah. It's it's way more expensive than a stamped steel bed. Uh, It saves about 70 pounds. I think it was 69 pounds or something that they said. Um, And, you know, of course, it's never going to rust. And it, it's, an, you know, they, they've they done some interesting manufacturing techniques with that. You know, it's actually made in the same way as they do um, sheet molding compound body panels mm-hmm. for Corvettes, the SMC body panels. So it's not done in the traditional layup approach that they, has been done for carbon fiber in the past. Is it claved? So like, do they do it under pressure? No. No, it's not. Huh. Interesting. So it's, yeah. So that, that brings the cost down substantially. Um, and this is the first... um you know, high volume application or you know, comparatively high volume application of this kind of technology for carbon fiber.
3: See, I think that that's going to be one of those features that everybody sort of, you know, like when we had plastic valve covers and intakes and stuff come out, you know, everybody thought it was going to be a failure point. And I think it's not going to be, you know, there may be some, some teething pains, but composites are a material that, or materials that automakers have been using for a very long time and they'll they'll figure it out and it will be a benefit you know who who wants to pick up truck with a bed that rusts out and that that is a significant problem so uh, i i think too it it's worth whatever the extra cost is to gm when you consider you can save 60 pounds there and put it elsewhere in the truck like that that's completely or, worth it or or add it right onto your payload rating yeah either or so uh that seems like a pretty good win <laughs> to me um, i also
1: did yours have moving running
3: boards no uh i um hmm i'm getting confused Th- this, between that and I, the vehicle i've got this week i, I
1: think, don't think i think did. i'm pretty sure this is the truck that has the running boards actually will move backwards and which allows you to get into the truck bed that way as well
3: oh from the front
1: oh that's slick right it's really, really cool. Yeah, it's really I, cool. I
2: hadn't, I hadn't noticed that before. Huh.
1: Yeah, it's just a slight movement back, and then you can get then into the truck. Because, of course, egress and ingress is always my issue.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, so. and, and particularly, you know, with this truck, you know, one of the things when GM launched the, um, the new Sierra and Silverado last year, one of the things they talked about is that the, the bedsides are higher. On this one, compared to the previous generation, compared to most others, <clears throat> so you actually have more contained volume in the bed uh, because they they raise the the sides of the bed by I don't know three or four inches, something like that. You know, which also you know, if you're coming in from the side, you know, does make it does <laughs> does make reaching in to grab stuff a little more challenging, no matter how tall you are.
1: Right, it does. So the and that's this is the other thing too. And I apologize if you hear Lucy in the background because she has decided to join us. Um, (laughs) Hi, Lucy. So, uh, getting in and out of the of the new Ram fifteen hundred without the split tailgate, the only way that you can access that bed is through the license plate holder. It's outrageous. Yeah. I, so, I, 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 it, it was just something that was I, so mind-boggling to me that they have not they, made more advancements they do,
2: there. They do, uh, they do offer an optional uh, step, uh, retracting step on the, on the rear that, um, you know, you can, uh, you can put your foot on it and push it down and well, I, uh, let you get up in there.
1: I saw that with the split tailgate. Because I actually demonstrated that on on um, Fox Business and Fox and Friends or something for them, uh, so I so I used that to get in and out. But that was with the split tailgate. Does it come? Even without you the can split get, tailgate, you can get it
2: with the conventional tailgate okay. as well. All right.
1: The the, the version the the fifteen hundred that I had last year, I remember having it around Christmas time. I it did not have it, and I complained yeah. bitterly to my friends there, and they were like, "No, no, no, it's coming, it's coming." So then went the Chicago Auto Show when they showed the split tailgate. Then that was one of the reasons I demonstrated it was because I was happy that they finally did something. It,
3: it's you know the, I think we all benefit from the. So the truck wars here—they're all good. This just comes down to which one you like. It does, and
1: and and it pushes them to innovate, and you know, which I think is a good segue to talking about innovative pickup trucks.
2: <laughs>
1: I don't know what you could have in mind. So, shall I introduce
3: our next topic? Well, I, I think uh, that, you, you know our our comment right before we recorded. I think is sort of the most salient point here is that with one sort of amateur hour press conference and a vehicle that seems rather slapped together, uh, they were able to erase a week of coverage from they the being LA Auto Show. Tesla. Yes. Just to be clear, <laughs> yes. So go go ahead. I just I thought that was amazing.
1: Well, no, I just wanted to clarify who they were. Because we haven't actually verbalized it yet.
3: Yeah, well, the, the now, Tesla now press conference yeah.
1: showing their Cybertruck. I think that was one of the more jaw-dropping, inexplicable. This has to be a joke. Moments, <laughs> you know, that we've all had in a long time. It
3: was uh, not what I was expecting.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what, what did you think, Sam? <laughs> Well, let me just say, first of all, that, you know, taste when it comes to design is is a very personal matter. And there's no guarantee that any two people will have the same taste in the way things look or should look. And frankly, I think this thing looks absolutely ridiculous. I know there are those out there like Tim Stevens at CNET that disagree with me and think it's a very innovative design. And, you know, give Tesla credit for that. That's fine. I disagree strongly. I, I, I could, I would not want to be seen anywhere near this thing. It, well, so,
3: well, design aside, because it's okay to look weird. I'm yes. fine with that. Like, make the, the Lamborghini <laughs> Countach of trucks all you want. But um, the I've seen weird um, takes on it. Like, it's going to be cheaper to manufacture because it has flat stainless steel body panels. I I don't think so. First of all, I think once you well, get to stainless that, stainless steel
2: is more expensive right. than, than regular steel or um, aluminum. So, you know, I, I don't think that that's going to be true. Right.
3: And you don't ever want to be putting dead flat body panels on a vehicle. They have much less inherent rigidity because there's no radius. The rate the, the stamping them out to a radius gives them some, some stiffness that's not there. If you just use a flat panel, that's just going to flap around. <laughs> like, this is just a whole whole host of reasons why that just doesn't ring true to me. But
2: but they demonstrated to us that that you know that that's not true for this one. Um, it's it's as stiff as anything. Yeah. Uh, th- Franz, Franz von and you know, took a sledgehammer to the side and couldn't dent it. It was a dead blow hammer. And um, I, <laughs> you know, that's
3: just showmanship. Fine. And there's always spectacle to any car. Uh, introduction so like those things that people are saying well it's not street legal yes I, I get it uh, it doesn't look like it's been designed with that in mind it's a concept car and every automaker introduces concept cars that have various non-street legal aspects so like I I get it I don't want you know. I think that's that's not where we should put our energy right now. What I see is a fundamental problem with the, the Tesla Cybertruck is that uh, they don't seem to have spent any time trying to understand the truck market, the needs of the truck buyer. Like we were just talking about all of these things, right, with this this GMC truck where the stuff that that makes it work when you're doing work, uh, this seems like a Model S Truck, And it seems like the Model S buyer is the person they're, they're speaking to, not anybody who has maybe a fleet of 100 trucks for their business that might be looking to go EV. And, um, you know, it doesn't seem like they've thought about those needs or fleet service. I, I certainly wouldn't want to invest in even two of these and try to keep them up and running for fleet use uh, with Tesla's track record of initial quality and service and support. Like that seems like you're going to be buying another truck just so you can get to work. So, uh, I I'll back off and just, um, see what your impressions are. Uh, you know, either of you have any particular takes you you'd
2: like to share? (laughs) Why don't you go first, Rebecca?
1: Okay. Uh, I think there's a couple things you're absolutely right, Dan. I don't think that they've considered who buys pickup trucks and, and they often, You know, Tesla will refer to the millions of units that are sold every year. But as you say, we've just gone through that there is always that balance of beauty and functionality and utility, probably more so than any other vehicle. The reason that people purchase this, you know, purchase a pickup truck is for the most part to utilize its functionality i do think that the bed was really cool with the built-in ramp you know the atv was the best part of that show <laughs> and, it was you know, yamaha.
2: which apparently <laughs> may not have even been a tesla built atv it looks uh, the, the reports online are that it uh, looks like it was based on a an existing yamaha atv
1: uh, probably just spray painted black or something. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But you know, I I mean I think that again, like looking, trying to be somewhat objective, looking at what I did like about it. I thought that was a really cool feature to have the built-in ramp. I don't think that it's a functional truck. I, you know, when when the bed is covered, it looks like it covers the rear windscreen and having just talked about visibility i think there's a lot of compromised visibility i know that there's the camera the rearview camera that many vehicles have today particularly gm i well, it's I, mandatory now i know the the rearview mirror that turns into a camera oh. that right. i don't know what there's is there a fancy name for that but you know like the, just
2: a, ca- a camera mirror system yeah, yeah. The,
1: the gmc sierra uh, it was the first time that I had ever seen that, and I found it to be super easy to use, but it was weird to not see the occupants of your vehicle then. And my understanding is that they don't have a toggle back for that. So you've got people in the back seat. You're not going to—
2: That's something that will have to change because legally you have to have uh, a reflective mirror as well. Okay. That's, that's, it's, uh, so that's why all the, the ones that are out there now, the various GM models and, and some others now as well— They all they can all toggle between the reflective mirror and the the camera display. Well, And they should all toggle between that. You're right. Because you want you want that as a backup, um, you know, in case in case something goes wrong with the camera.
1: Well, and it's also just the idea that, you know, sometimes it is helpful to be able to see, you know, to glance back and see people that are in the vehicle with you. So obviously, you know, there's a lot of there's no side mirrors. And, you know, the camera system I I drove when I drove the Audi e-tron last December uh, overseas, we had the cameras, the side mirrors were cameras, which definitely took a little time to get used to. But eventually we did, you know, through the course of the day. So all these things you can overcome. I, I do like the fact that it has, you know, the leveling suspension and such. We saw that again when they reloaded the ATV, that front end came up I mean, that was thing was high. And then it sort of, you know, it's self leveled. So all those things are good. It's just that, you know, I think that you do have to have a fundamental understanding of the consumer that buys pickup trucks. And, you know, I can't see a, a rancher, or somebody that uses this as a pickup truck, a contractor, using this as a pickup truck. It's not to say they're not going to buy them, but they wouldn't – they're not going to – this isn't going to be a work truck.
3: Who do you think is going to be attracted to it? It's it's not attraction.
1: It's it's not about the design, right? The design is very, very controversial, no doubt. But I can see – and God bless them – I can see contractors here in Greenwich – Pulling up to that thing
3: <laughs> really? with that
1: thing because it's a talking point, right? And it shows how innovative they are. And
2: you'll, you'll see, you'll see the the owner of the company.
1: Yes, exactly. Not
2: pulling not up like, Not not not, uh, not not the not the electricians and the plumbers. Exactly, and not the trade. But the, the guy that owns the guy. Yeah, the guy that owns the company. Right, the guy be that pulling owns up the company. That
1: thing. And keep in mind too, you know, we went through this period of brutalist architecture. And, you know, look at Boston Town Hall, for God's sakes. It's considered one of the ugliest buildings
3: in the oh, world. It, uh, City Hall Plaza is so good. If you looked at the other proposals, it, they, it. they definitely picked the best one. Well,
2: <laughs> 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 that's a low bar. Yeah, I don't and know. The,
1: I, so and the I, FBI, well, the FBI, the Hoover Building in yeah. Washington, D.C., also Brutalist architecture. No. So uh, this yeah, is a Brutalist uh, car. That's I how it's designed. It. Yeah.
3: I, I, and I appreciate Brutalist architecture you know you know corduroy concrete and you you make the materials part of the um the design in a very you know sort of deliberate way uh this i I, for for, you know in terms of the concerns that you would have for a truck the packaging seems to really suffer in in this design because like that high peaked roof you've got no rear headroom um it, it just You know, practically when, you know, part of the trick of designing anything is to fit around your actual functional parameters, right? Like if you're designing a truck, you've got to start with like, what is it going
2: to be doing? And you you design from the inside out, not from the outside in. Right. And and, then there's
3: always that friction between engineering and design and nobody's going to get exactly what they want, but really the magic happens when they they come together and everybody's satisfied with the compromises made in in the end product. Um, they they talked a little bit about some of the capabilities and they, you know the towing numbers seem good. Um, my concern is that there was emphasis put on the acceleration numbers, which are complete nonsense. Um, I, I don't. There are some people that care how quickly their trucks get to sixty miles an hour. I really don't think that's an issue. I think really what makes more sense is to talk about what, if any, uh, modifications have been made to the the uh, the power. Uh, hardware, you know the the batteries, the the cabling, the motors, um, and ha- you know how much it can tell, how long it can how long it can do it for, you know, because we don't really have a good idea of how to measure that. Like how long are you going to get useful work out of this electric truck? We right. we haven't really been there yet, so we don't really know what the best way to measure that is. And and they could have established that and saying like this is useful to you because you know we limited the performance. In terms of speed, but certainly more than adequate performance, and you get X amount of of range even while you're towing ten thousand pounds or or something. And and you know I'm still they, they you know Tesla has good good power electronics, good batteries, good motors, but when you're trying to start off an extra ten thousand pounds on that, you know you're going to put a lot of current demands on everything, and current equals heat, and you know how have they how have they done all that? I didn't get any of yeah
2: that. you know to what you said about, you know, acceleration, for example, the truck that they showed was on these big knobbly off-road tires. Yeah. And, you know, if you try to accelerate to to 60 and 2.9 seconds on those tires, you're going to get, you know, one maybe two launches off those tires before you start shredding them. Yeah. So that's, you know, you can either have the off-road capability or you can have that kind of acceleration, but not both, you know, similarly with the towing, you know, it used to be up until about 2011, 2012 timeframe, you know, when you heard tow ratings from manufacturers, you know, from Ford and GM and Chrysler and, and anybody else, you know, they tended to be all over the map because there was no standard for towing. Um, you know, SAE developed a standard, a standard standard. Test, testing procedure for, for doing tow ratings, just as they'd have in the past with horsepower and torque and, and all kinds of other things. They de- that's, what, that's one of the things that I say the Society of Automotive Engineers does. They develop standards that most of the industry adheres to. And, you know, that J twenty eight oh seven standard. You know, ever since then, you know, manufacturers test to that standard, and so now you can directly compare those tow ratings. My guess is that fourteen thousand pound tow rating we heard about the other night was not done to the J twenty eight oh seven standard. And you know, if you if you talk to Dan Edmonds, we'll have to get him on the show one of these days from edmonds.com, No relation to the the family that owns <laughs> Edmonds by the way. But you know, Dan you know does most of their their testing. And he's done a lot over the last several years with Teslas and, you know, has great respect for a lot of what Tesla does, you know, as I do from a from a technical standpoint. But, you know, like he's done a lot of test uh, tow testing with the Model X, you know, because it has a five thousand pound tow rating. And, you know, if you look up some of the stuff he's he's written on it, you know, basically, even with a fairly small trailer hooked up to a Model X, like a less than two thousand pound trailer he was losing about, you know, at least half of the range of that vehicle uh, when towing. And, you know, this is one of the challenges when you're towing, you know, you do you do have a significant degradation in efficiency, whether it's gas efficiency, you know, if you're towing with a uh, with a a conventional truck or or range with an EV, you're going to lose a lot when you're towing because you're doing a lot more work. Your aerodynamics are a lot worse. And, um, you know, this is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, manufacturers, you know, all all three of the domestic manufacturers have brought out um, diesel versions of their light duty trucks, you know, even though they are seen primarily as a a niche product, a relatively low volume product in the grand scheme of things. You know, for Ford, I think they project, you know, sales of the diesel F-150 to be no more than about 30 to 35,000 units a year for people that tow all the time like say for example a landscaper uh you know that has to tow around you know a bunch of equipment you know a bunch of lawnmowers and you know all kinds of other equipment that you know they are towing on a daily basis when you're towing with an eco f-150 you know that 22 23 mile per gallon rating that it nominally has that drops to about 11 or 12 a lot of times you know same thing goes for you know a lot of the other trucks even for for, for a V8 truck, you know, you, you a gas V8, you lose a lot of fuel efficiency when you're towing. And one of the, the advantages that a diesel engine has is that under load, it actually has much less degradation in fuel efficiency under load. So if you're, you know, they targeted that truck at people that tow all the time, whether you're towing a horse trailer or, you know, a load of lawnmowers, you know, that's, that's something that is an advantage to those customers. And. What we've seen so far from from Tesla, from the one vehi- Tesla vehicle that can tow the Model X, is that it, it suffers from that same problem of, you know, basically cutting your efficiency in half or more when you hook up a trailer to it. And, you know, I think that's going to be a real challenge, not just for Tesla, but for all the manufacturers that are bringing out electric pickup trucks in the next couple yeah, of years. Well, I
3: mean, it takes your range. For, so if you have a 300 mile range, now you have one hundred and fifty and if it's hilly, right. you have less. <laughs> well, I mean yeah. depending on regen and stuff, but um, it also really stresses all of the the powertrain. So, you know, what does what the durability of that look like? And I don't know that that's been really comprehensively tested.
2: Yeah, I I, I guess I'm less concerned about durability of electric trucks in general. Uh, As opposed to, you know, maybe in the case of uh, of Tesla's trucks, we'll we'll, we'll see, you know, they most most of them, most of Tesla's vehicles, you know, they have more of a problem with reliability than durability. You know, things, you know, randomly stop working. But I think when they do work. You know they they tend to work for a long time. You know, um, you know, talking you know over the last couple of years, a couple of different times to uh, Rahul Sonad, a guy who run runs a company called Tesla Loop that uh, until recently um, offered uh, inner city transportation services with a fleet of Model S's and X's, like between L.A. and San Diego and L.A. and Palm Springs. Um, you know, he's he's had a couple of Model X's that you know racked up over three hundred thousand miles um, without too much difficulty. So, you know, in general, an EV shouldn't be too much of a problem there. Um, but you know, again, you know, we haven't really seen it used in this kind of a use case, you know, with, with consistent heavy towing. And so that may be putting more load on the batteries than they're, than they're really up to, you know, depending on how you do your, your temperature management in a battery.
3: Right. And that's, you yeah, that's my it makes me scratch my head. I'm not overly concerned about it. It's certainly a solvable problem. I just wonder what it means.
2: Yeah, but Rebecca, to what you were saying earlier about you know the way the truck is designed for you know for people for commercial users, you know what do you know what do you think about commercial users and electric trucks in general, and you know, more specifically the Cybertruck? <sighs>
1: So I love the idea of electric trucks in a fleet environment because they go back to the same station, you know, they go back to a specific charger. They can you can set up a a place where these trucks are going to go back. I also like the and I'm talking about like UPS, FedEx, the post office. I I also like the idea local
2: operations I'm sorry? where they're not going long Local operations where they're not going straight far from home.
1: Right. We're not talking long haul. We're talking, you know, planned routes. Right. Mm -hmm. And and I also like the fact that there you on some level get the neighborhood effect. You know, you get the idea like, you know, you talk to your you're a mailman, you or a mailwoman, you know, you have an electric truck now, you know, what do you think about that? You can kind of get that real world experience. So I think there's and you also get around the whole, you know, the, the challenge with the consumer is, you know, is this better than what they have right now? And and, you know, when we look at the Tesla truck or any of the other electric vehicles that are coming out, is it better? Does it solve the problem of transportation and mobility or, and functionality better? Than what they currently have, and I think that in some cases with uh, with that local delivery, it could be yes, you know this this could be better. Uh, when I think too of like what Ford has been able to do with some of their smaller vans, you know it's been fantastic, really, because it they were better than what delivery people were using before. So from that standpoint, oh. I'm a fan when i you know from from a, of the technology itself you know the cyber truck is incredibly controversial not because of the design but because of that limited functionality you know again we've spent some time talking about ingress and egress to the truck bed those sides are so high is that a functional truck. And that's what, you know, I don't think that they really were able to demonstrate effectively. And, you know, as far as when we think about the design, you know, the, the way that vehicles are designed historically is because they had an engine in the front for the most part. But, you know, they usually have the engine in the front and you automatically get this long hood and just because it's not there doesn't mean that you shouldn't design it as if it were because again that can be functional space it doesn't have that frunk it doesn't have the kind of storage uh that that people need and want in their truck but in terms of the technology, you know, you're absolutely right, Sam. Tesla, I love yeah. the fact that they always push the envelope. They always push, they have pushed the traditional automakers to be better, to to come out with vehicles that that are, you know, that challenge that that status quo that that, you know, are pushing them. Regulations are doing it as well, but I think that Tesla with the range that they've been able to achieve with the the historically beautiful vehicles that they've come out with the stupid falcon wing on the model (laughs) x doors notwithstanding (laughs) but you know they push the envelope they've they've the interiors are beautiful there's a, a you know there's an elegance to these products uh that up until the cybertruck you know tesla was known for it doesn't have to be ugly you know, that's that was always the that was always the complaint with the with the Nissan Leaf and, you know, and, and to Celestric said the, yeah. the Bolt, uh, right, and the Prius, you know, these are not attractive vehicles. Well, it's, that Cybertruck, you know, <laughs> yeah, I,
2: you know, I, and, you know, to, to be to be honest, you know, aside from the Prius, most of those unattractive vehicles didn't sell in huge numbers either. So. And,
1: Right. Well, and that's what Tesla showed was that it doesn't have to have, you don't have to have this compromised design language, you can have a beautiful EV. And, you know, as you said, at the very beginning, it's in the eye of the beholder. But I do think that most of the Tesla products are really elegant and and look you know they're distinctive, and they turn heads in a positive way. I think this Cybertruck was a big misstep for them, and and a missed opportunity also. You know when you see some of the some of the renderings of what it could look like, uh, it, it was just, you know, I think everyone was kind of waiting for the joke to end and the real truck to come out.
3: Well, yeah, the what I haven't gotten from this is you know what's actually underneath it how is it how is it built and engineered and and what uh of your existing technology and pieces and parts have you leveraged for this you know um how did you do any durability testing you know all the stuff that a normal automaker will sort of crow about when they introduce a new model and so Tesla has been successful kind of in, in spite of its management. You know, all the the very hardworking people. I would say totally yeah, in spite of its management. They just want that, you know, they want to succeed. I want them to succeed. What I'm very frustrated by is this just completely haphazard approach to uh, – product development and announcements. And you know, none of their cars really uh, you know, they haven't built from platform to platform. They they like each car is a distinct platform, at least uh more distinct than than it should be. So they they're not, you know, they're, they're not gaining efficiencies. Um this doesn't look like they did any market research on who might buy it. Uh and so it look like the people that are gonna buy this and I, I honestly don't think that this this truck has much of a chance of ever seeing the light of day uh but if it does the people who are going to buy it they're going to cannibalize their own sales these are these are model s people who had trucks before traded them for a model s and now want you know now there's a product for them that's great so they're not going to necessarily see uh, a net increase in in uh you know sales there'll be some conquests but really not not too many um so I uh, I'm just I'm frustrated by the squandered potential. There is a a lot of opportunity to do better. I want them to do better because they could they could kill it if they put their sort of their hearts and minds to it. And I just I'm just not seeing that. This this looks like a a vanity project that was very poorly considered. Um so we'll we'll see where it goes. I don't want to belabor the point. Um but I, I want to know more about what's under the actual controversial body work
1: well and and to you know continue on the topic of the idea of an electric pickup truck just in general, I would love to hear from people and the idea of you know do they see this as a potential? Work truck, you know. Sam, to your point, I had actually been discussing this on Twitter with somebody about landscapers, you know, and the people that have to tow and such. But there are other places that pickup trucks go that don't that aren't necessarily uh, require towing. And so, you know, is is the and of course, the the electric range. It all depends on the charging, right? It all depends on the charging infrastructure and stuff. So, um, but can we get traditional pickup truck owners? You know, even if you get one or two percent of that population, it's still a good number. Uh, you know, that is this a, is this a technology that pickup truck owners can see eventually integrating into their lifestyle?
2: I, I think that you know, especially for commercial users, I think that there's actually a huge opportunity. <laughs> For electrification uh, in trucks, because you know, for for commercial users, you know, for for the average consumer, you know, you tend to drive 15,000 miles a year. And as we've talked about before, going electric from a purely economic standpoint doesn't necessarily make sense. You know, in terms of the fuel savings you're going to get in going electric, um, the the numbers don't necessarily add up, but um, for commercial users that often, you know, are going seven, you know, driving seventy-five to a hundred thousand miles a year in a lot of applications, now the operating costs of using that vehicle make up a much larger proportion of the total cost of ownership. And you know, if you're going from two fifty-three dollars a gallon, or you know, if you're in California, four bucks a gallon for gas, to you know, electricity, you know, at depending again where you are anywhere from 10 to 30 cents a kilowatt hour, now all of a sudden you know your operating costs potentially get slashed pretty dramatically uh, and that that makes a, a a big difference for commercial users. So you know it, it you know it depends on how much the upfront cost premium is, but it's you know that cost premium is is has been shrinking and, and will continue to shrink. Uh, So I think that for a lot of commercial users, I think that they're, you know, if they're driving, you know, let's say, you know, 100, 150 miles a day, uh, you know, you know, doing, you know, whatever their their application is. Again, it depends a lot on the application, um, but I think that there's a lot of opportunity there to, um, you know, to get some pretty significant cost savings by going to electric. And, you know, there, there's some, some things that you can utilize, you know, I mean, one of the things that that Musk talked about was the ability to, uh, you know, utilize the, you know, the battery to power, power your tools on a job site. And this is something that Ford has talked about with the, uh, the F-150 hybrid that's coming out next year is, you know, for uh, contractors and, you know, other, other um, users that, you know, have to use power tools or charge power tools on a job site where there may not be electricity available. You know, they can use that. You know, today they, they have to haul along a generator in their truck, so that's one more piece of equipment they're bringing along. With the F one hundred and fifty hybrid, they'll be able to use the hybrid uh, the hybrid electric motor as a generator to power their tools. So that you know that simplifies it, and that's going to be a more efficient and cleaner system. Even if they have to keep the the gas engine running uh, along there, that's going to be more still going to be more efficient than a typical gas generator that they have to bring along. So I think that there's some significant opportunities for electrification in the commercial market. But to take advantage of that you really have to have a design that meets the needs of those same users you know think a design that they can you know most of those users you know do various upfitting you know they'll put tool racks and various other equipment on their um on the trucks you know for whatever it is they're hauling uh that you know that makes it easier you know for them and you know most of that equipment is standardized. You know, if you look at trucks today, you know, they have slots in the bed to to put racks and various things in tie downs. And, you know, this is something that that with the design of the Cybertruck could be a lot more challenging.
1: Now, I think that there's, there's absolutely, there's opportunity in the commercial space. And I love the idea of using, the available battery on a job site. I think that's absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's, it reminds me of, you know, being able to use a power wall or a second source mm-hmm. uh, when you lose electricity in your house. So I think that there's, that's why, as, as Dan said, it's frustrating because this could have been really, really good. And I don't think that they respected the opportunity and and that's something that is frustrating. It's it's not to say that they're not going to fix it or they won't they won't get better, you know, Tesla won't get better in time, but as you say there's there's a ton of opportunities here and so I do think that it's a, it's a real space and it's a it's a it's a real place where I can see a lot more hybrids and a
3: lot more electric vehicles. Out there in the marketplace, well, it's a huge uh, potential market. Yeah, I, I think that it there's is. a lot of um, you know, for whatever you might think about uh, folks who who you know the, the sort of trucking audience, trucking uh, a customer. I think they're ready to go EV when it makes practical sense for them, and it doesn't really cost them that much extra, and it's reliable. And you know, it's, I, I think like Sam was saying, I think that F one hundred and fifty is going to do great when it goes hybrid and plug in. <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> it's a trusted brand, yeah, too. absolutely.
2: And and you know um, the those buyers you know they'll be able to reuse a lot of the the extra equipment you know that they use in their trucks today you know oh. in that in that hybrid and then in the electric version as well when it comes out and on Thursday uh, Thursday morning you know Mary Barra was talking at a conference in New York uh, she's the CEO of GM and she confirmed that you know the GM's electric pickup. Will be out in the second half of 2021. The Ford uh, F-150 electric should be out in, the, in roughly the same time frame, uh, and uh, you know Ford is also doing an electric version of the Transit. You know this was something that came out of their. Uh, their uaw contract uh you know their, oh that's going to the, be their excellent. third ev which is fantastic Is going to be an electric, an electric transit and that's the vehicle that's going to be running on the rivian platform most that's yeah. the vehicle and that's, that's going to that get like
3: so widely adopted i mean think of all the, yes. the yeah i mean I, amazon's running well i guess they're running uh, fiats but I- either way like yeah so there, there's a lot to that market that i feel is is untapped and and i i think that the sort of the legacy or quote-unquote old line automakers um, who have fleets much more figured out are going to be the ones that that crack that wide open and and it's actually going to make
2: them money it's my prediction but silicon valley tech bros will love the cyber truck
3: yeah that that's fine so they can sit in traffic if
2: they can find if they can find a place to park yeah. it
3: well they'll just park it on top of all the proletarian anyway <laughs> moving on let's move on before we get too angry <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, uh, so it was L.A. last week, right? It was the L.A. auto show. That did
2: happen. Yeah. Um, I was there for a whole yeah, week. How was it? Uh, it was interesting. You know, there, it was it, like a lot of other recent auto shows. There was less big news that came out of it. You know, th- less fewer announcements You know, than we had heard prior to the show. Uh, that came out of it. But there were were a few interesting tidbits, Um, you know, one one that came out actually right after uh, was Volkswagen in Germany. Uh, So it's not actually related to the show, but Volkswagen announced that they are um, canceling all their internal combustion engine motorsports programs and going all electric with their motorsports programs. And electrification, as we've just talked about, was really, you know, the big theme of L.A., as it has been to varying degrees for the last several years. Um, but uh, you know, Audi showed off the e-tron sportback, which is uh, uh, a different styled version essentially of the same vehicle that, that we've already driven-the uh, the wagon SUV type uh, e crossover electric. Yeah, the, I love the the that GT, I think it looks it, awesome. Would, well, this not this is not the GT, this is the sportback. So oh, the GT basically. is coming next year. They confirmed the production GT will be out by you know by the end of next year. That's the one we saw as a concept in, last year in LA. Right, but
1: the one and they showed in LA the, I think looks great.
2: Right. So the, the GT is based on the, the Taycan. The Sportback uh, is based on the Etron Quattro that we already have. Uh, but you know, with a, a slope back, you know, coupe like X6, BMW X6 fastback, you know, BMW sort of X6 fastback yeah. uh, design, and I spent some time talking with Matt Mastefi, uh, who's the manager of electric vehicle programs at Audi of America, and um, they actually did make some changes. Uh, so it's it's mainly based on the existing e-tron, which by the way is now just called Etron. It's not. Uh, so, like like the original Quattro Coupe back in like '83, which subsequently became known as the Ur Quattro among fans, you know, Ur meaning um, original or uh, primitive. Uh, the E-Tron that we have now is essentially the Ur E-Tron, and all the ones coming forward will have some suffix on them, like Sportback, uh, to distinguish them. Um, so, one of the, the big complaints about the current E-Tron is its range is too short. For you know, given the size of the battery it has, you know, because Audi went very conservative, they're not using the full capacity of the battery. They only use eighty-eight percent of the battery in the e-tron. For the sportback, they've made some changes. It's going to be ch- made some changes to the power electronics to the battery management system. They're now bumping that up to ninety-one percent of the battery will be used, uh, and the expectation is that the range will probably be somewhere ar- around two fifteen to two twenty miles, uh, which is still not great, but it's better than the 204 that the current e-tron gets. Right. Um, but one of the really cool things, which unfortunately we will not get on ours because it's a regulations, is the the lighting system on there. They, the e-tron Sportback has these matrix LED lights that do all kinds of wild and crazy things. <laughs> it basically has a, uh, if, if you remember, uh, old uh, projection TVs, uh, their their DLPs, the little micro mirror yep. systems. Yeah. Um, basically, using the same kind of mechanism, it's produced by uh, Texas Instruments. A little micro mirror system in front of the LEDs, and it's I think it's uh, 1.3 megapixel lighting pattern that they can do. You know, and so you can control the the, the light pattern dynamically. Uh, so one of the things that it can do, for example, is as you're driving down the road, your high beams. You know, if you're on a you know dark road, you know, there's nobody else around. You got your high beams on so you can see more of what's around you. Um, When it detects a car coming towards you, uh, it can automatically mask out the portion of the view where that car is. So instead of shining the high beams on that approaching car, you get high beams all around it, but not on that car. So you don't blind the oncoming driver, things like that. Uh, Another thing that they showed us that they demoed, is, um, you know, when a, if a pedestrian is detected, it can actually cast essentially, you know, a, a light up that pedestrian so you can see the pedestrian better. Um, you know, it can uh, project uh, little chevrons on the road where the lane markings are to, to give you more guidance, you know, where you should be, things like that. Uh, so there's all kinds of neat things that they can do with it. But, of course, those lights aren't legal here <laughs> in the U.S. yet. So it sounds maybe like- someday we'll get cool lights, but... Not now.
1: And will they also help with uh, autonomous driving or autonomous features?
2: Yeah. So, yeah. For, you know, those, those same that same kind of technology can be used for autonomous vehicles because you can actually project messages right on the road, um, you know, so, you know, to signal the intent of the vehicle. So if the vehicle, you know, is is. Not going to be moving, you can you know put parked or stopped. Uh, you know, if the vehicle, you know, before the vehicle starts to move, you can say, you know, vehicle about to move, or you know, some some sort of short message there so that pedestrians and other road users can see get an idea of what you know what the vehicle's intent is. Uh, you know, so projecting those kinds of messages. And it's a very high resolution uh control system and it, it worked really well for the for the demo.
1: That's really cool. It's very clever. Yeah. And, yep. and it worked for the demo unlike some other demos that we saw this week <laughs>
2: uh, yeah no, nothing broke uh, it all it all worked as intended uh, so good. that was good uh, no no broken glass yes um, but but of course that you know they didn't have a designer throwing steel balls at the at the at the headlight sure, cluster so that that is the one the one downside to these fancy headlight systems is that you know if you do get into a fender bender and, and you know have to replace that headlamp cluster, you're not talking about like a six dollar bulb. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, that's pricey. They they didn't they didn't talk about the pricing, but you know the parts parts prices. But you can bet these things are going to be really expensive to replace if you get into a little accident. But hopefully you get into fewer accidents because you can see better.
3: Exactly, it all works together. Yeah, and it, you know, it's lighting technology is something that really it's. It's fascinating. It seems boring, but it's something that we really should have better lights on the road. Uh, although I was, I've was, i been struck by the last few vehicles I've driven with halogen lights. Um, and, you know, a good halogen system, um, but, you know, lamp and reflector, they're only 55 watts or 60 on high beams. Like, that's, that's not a lot of wattage, but if they're designed well, they really, they put the light in the in the right place and they can actually be surprisingly better than a lot of the hid or or, um, led systems that are out there it's just what throws you off i think is that they look um they have that more uh sort of orange color temperature um where the the newer systems they burn at at daylight which is you know 5600 kelvin so um they they look maybe brighter because they're whiter but they actually they have a patchy crappy beam pattern and it's all down to beam pattern so yeah, the, the better you can the more light you can put on the road and keep it there, the better. I'm really fascinated by how these these new lights can just they can sort of make, basically make a dot of darkness and track it and and just, you know, keep the rest of the road illuminated that brightly for you. That That's amazing to me.
2: Yeah, it, it is pretty cool.
3: The
1: other place I've noticed the lighting is in the rear view ca- in the in the um, backup camera. So on that Mazda, the Mazda three, the backup camera was so bright, it it provided fantastic light for you know nighttime backing up. I have a Hyundai Santa Fe, uh, and I was in my sister's driveway, so exactly the same driveway last night, and I was like, wow, this is not nearly as bright as the Mazda was.
2: Yeah, that 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 can be a challenge. You know, um, you know, it's great having these backup cameras, but. Yeah. If you're not lighting up the area where the camera is looking at, it's not really very helpful to you.
1: Yeah. I was really, I was kind of taken aback, but again, the Mazda had, it was definitely brighter and I had, her driveway isn't tricky. It's just, you know, it's at night and you want to, when you put the car in reverse, you're expecting it to be a certain amount of light there. And, uh, and the Mazda did a really, really nice job of that. And I've been, I was I was surprised and obviously I talk about the Hyundai more next week, but I was a little disappointed in the, with the Hyundai Santa Fe, it also sits up higher, but it still was just not as bright. I don't know. I was, but that's something that I, you know, I, I've seen a big difference and a lot of variation in the brightness and effectiveness of the lighting in a rear, in a backup camera. Not something that's talked about every day. (laughs)
2: no but it is something we do a lot so you know it's it's important
3: what else did you see in la um one
2: other one other one that i wanted to talk about um is the hyundai vision t concept uh you know we saw you know there was a lot of emphasis on electrification like i talked about you know a lot of evs there was the the volkswagen id space vision wagon which is coming in 2022 and we built in chattanooga um and uh, you know, uh, BMW showed the Mini E, which is launches in the US early in 2020. Um, but the uh, the Vision T is pretty cool because it it shows um, the next generation of Hyundai's design language. You know where they're going with their design language, which is a little little bolder. Uh, and this is you know seen as kind of a preview of where the um, the Tucson. The next generation Tucson is going uh, probably in about uh, 18 months or so. And uh, there's some interesting stuff about, you know, aside from the aside from the the basic design, if you look at photos of it, you know, when it's off, it looks like there's no headlights on the front. You know, you've got this kind of diamond pattern. um, Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. But in fact, um, there's there's some. Technology that they're using there, which is actually already on the 2020 Sonata, um, which is going on sale uh, shortly. And on the on the Sonata, if you've seen the new Sonata, you know, when it's off, it looks like there's a chrome strip on either side that extends up from the, the headlamp cluster and runs along the edge of the, the crease of the hood on either side and runs to the base of the A-pillars. But the front section of that, the front portion of that, is when it's off, it looks like it's just a chrome strip, but it's actually an, an electrochromic coating on the back of the plastic, so it's like a one-way mirror. So when you light up behind it, it lights up like a light, and that's what they're using as the headlights on this on this uh, Vision T concept, which is is really neat. So you know you get this these wild looking lights on it, and um, you know it it it's a great design I think. But, you know, and then when it's off, it just, you know, kind of blends in, uh, you know, with the, with the grill. And uh, it's it's quite quite unique. I don't think it's going to be legal for headlights, as, as we've already talked about. Uh, but at least, you know, they're able to use it for things like daytime running lamps and, and other stuff, you know, to kind of hide it. Uh, and then when you when you turn it on, it, it, it you know, gives you gives you some unique, you know, some interesting design possibilities.
3: It's very cool i think it it yeah, it yeah hyundai design is just stunning they're doing so yeah. good uh just i mean that thing looks i don't know what what this design language is going to sell for but you can bet it's going to be from like the 20s up to the 50s right it looks like a million bucks it's just so so classically uh refined and and handsome i just you know they have clearly made the investment and they're letting the investment actually you know they're not getting in the way of it they're not micromanaging it they're they're really letting the guys that they hire do their thing and it's it's paying off their cars are just just beautiful
2: yeah no they're, they're doing some good stuff oh and one other one um just to to bring up as well is from the other side of the hyundai motor group um Family uh, Kia uh, also introduced a new small crossover called the Seltos. No electrification on this one for now, uh, but it's, you know, it's their, uh a new compact crossover that slots in just below the, the Sportage. Um, it's not as small as the Kona. It's, it's actually about the same size as the current Sportage. Uh, and what James Bell from Kia told me is that the, the next gen Sportage is going to get a little bit bigger than where it is today. It's going to move a little more up market, but this, you know, like a lot of the other um, recent, you know, compact crossovers we've seen like the the Hyundai Venue, the, uh, the Nissan kicks um, less, less so the kicks. Uh, but you know, what they're doing with this one, you know, is trying to make them more affordable to consumers. And they're, they're doing some interesting stuff with this. Um, you know, so, you know, it's, it's, like I said, it's a little bit bigger than the Venue uh, and the Kicks, but it's going to start at like twenty-two thousand dollars. Wow! And twenty-two thousand dollars for the base model—that's with all-wheel drive.
1: Amazing, huh? That's a
2: great and, price point. You know, actually, if if you if you want uh, if you want front-wheel drive, it's actually going to be in a slightly more premium trim level at a slightly higher price. So the base model, you know, unlike the Venue and the the Kicks, which don't offer all-wheel drive at all. This one actually has standard all-wheel drive for $22,000. <laughs> and 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 for that for that price point, you know, it's actually got a, you know, like like modern Kia's, you know, it's got a really nice interior, uh, you know, really nicely executed. It, it looks like it, this could be a real winner. Yeah.
1: well, you know, Luke Dockin woke. I think that's how you say. it. I mean, he's done a great job at leading up Hyundai and Kia and Genesis design, along of course with Peter Schreyer, which is, who's legendary. But they've got a fantastic group there. Designing these products in Korea, the I mean, these guys are so international in t- in terms of their mindset and their and where they grew up. You know, there's another designer, Sung Yip, He's Korean, and, and so you've got you know this mix of cultures, uh, but with a lot of. They, they have a clear vision of where they want each of these brands individually to go. And I think that we're really starting to see their design language coming into play. And it's one of the reasons why the products are getting better and better. I think Luke's been there since 2015 or so. So we're just you know really starting to see uh, his vision come to light.
2: Yeah, I think there's some there's some great stuff there, and it's um, looking forward to seeing what else comes out of the Hyundai Motor Group, aside from that new grill on the the Genesis G90, which
3: oh my gosh, know, that thing is enormous, you, but you it's the know size what? of an like, apartment. Overall, I, I <laughs> G90 still looks good. I like what they've it almost has a little bustle back to the trunk too. But I, I think that they've uh, you know everything they do looks, looks looks tasteful i yeah it's a big girl but i mean you know, i also i'm not anywhere near as offended as everybody else is by the new bmw x7 i think that thing looks fantastic on the road so whatever big gr- yeah i think that thing's fabulous <laughs> yeah. on the road big girls big girls have happened before and they'll happen again yeah. like, whatever
1: it's
3: exactly yeah. <laughs> all right well i think that we've covered a lot of ground uh, and we're, we're edging towards two hours, so we should probably uh, call it a podcast.
2: <laughs> Sounds like a plan.
3: Sounds good. All right. Well, we'll catch uh, everybody. Please definitely send us individual Hello World emails so we can, <laughs> with all the information, <laughs> and we'll talk to you next week. Let us know if there's anything uh, we missed you want to talk to us about, and uh, we'll go from there. All right. Thanks.
2: All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye.